0: We have analyzed and looked at the promises of God, just a few of them. In the past several weeks, we've looked at God's promise of rest, and uh, He gives rest to our weary souls. We looked at God's promise of grace, which aren't aren't you thankful for that? And uh, we looked at God's promise of goodness, and tonight we're going to consider just a really awesome promise, God's promise of forgiveness. And um, one man said this, Herbert Lockyer, he said, we would have been... Of all men most miserable, had there been no divine forgiveness of sin. But how rich and full are the promises associated with such a blessed gospel truth? I I, I identify with that. I'm thankful for God's forgiveness. I like to define things and look up definitions. So I looked up the definition of forgiveness. And one man put it this way. He said, forgiveness is the giving up of an inward feeling of injury or resentment the removing of a feeling of anger and restoring a feeling of favor and affection. That's good, isn't it? Another man said this, it's the act of pardon toward an offender by which he is considered and treated as not guilty. And he goes on to say it's the remission of a debt, a fine or a penalty. Perhaps forgiveness is the thing that we need most in our lives. And yet it's probably the thing That we struggle most to give to other people and even to ourselves. But I'm thankful tonight that God, unlike us, He does not struggle to forgive. And so we're gonna look at a singular verse. If you're there, I ask you to stand in 1 John chapter 1, very popular verse. I'm sure you are very familiar with it. 1 John chapter 1, and let's read verse 9 out loud together. Can we do that tonight? Y'all with me? Everybody but Brother Brian? Everybody else with me? Okay. (laughs) All right, let's read it together. 1 John 1 9. Ready? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your promise of forgiveness. I pray tonight that hearts that are maybe burdened down by the guilt or perhaps the shame from past choices that they made or did not make, I pray tonight, Lord, they would find comfort and that they would find encouragement. I pray that as we reflect on your forgiveness, that our hearts would just be filled with gratitude. And Lord, we are so thankful for sending Jesus to die on the cross for us and making a way for forgiveness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Well, Scripture makes it very clear that our God is a God of forgiveness. Uh, He's a God of grace and mercy and love. He's a God of reconciliation. If you're taking notes, you might just jot down these verses. I'm just going to kind of rapid fire them. But the scripture has a lot to say about God's forgiveness and that being a part of his character. In Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist said, But there is forgiveness with thee, O God, that thou mayest be feared. Daniel, in his book, said in Daniel 9.9, To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against him. Don't you like that last part? Though we've rebelled against him, God is given us mercies and forgivenesses. Psalm 86, verse 5, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive, and plenteous of mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Psalm 103, our choir sings it, and I love it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. We see from Scripture, and that's just a few examples, but all throughout Scripture we see that at the very core of who God is, He's a God of forgiveness. And His forgiveness has several applications to it. One application would be His forgiveness is eternal, And that's through salvation, right? And once you're saved, you have eternal life, you have this relationship with God, and He has eternally forgiven you of all your sins. I think that's amazing. But not only is it an eternal forgiveness, but it's also a relational forgiveness. Because don't you know that once we get saved, we still sin? And we still offend His heart at times. And and even though we've been forgiven of our sin and we've been justified in the sight of God, there's also a relational type of forgiveness that we need to avail ourselves to because each and every day we're going to fail God and we're going to hurt Him. And and so we need His forgiveness. And this this is what kind of blows my mind about God, is that more than anything else, He wants to be close to you and to me. God wants to be intimate in fellowship with you. If that doesn't blow your mind, there might be something wrong with you. But for those of us who are saved here tonight, I want to remind you that God is our Father. He's our Father. Brother Daniel's talked a lot about that on Wednesday nights, going through the Lord's Prayer, and you were meant as his child to be close to one another. Um, Just the other night, Audrey... My seven-year-old daughter asked me to read them a story, and this is normal in our house. So she picked out a book, and and she was sitting really close to me. And then she said, oh, i got to go get a drink of water. So she went to go get a drink of water, and Jace was there with us, my six-year-old son. And um, he was right there. And when Audrey got up to leave, Jace scooted over you know, and took her spot. And he got as close to me as, but this, this happened to any other parents? He's sitting as like, without him being on top of me, he's almost on top of me, you know? And Audrey gets back from getting her water and she assesses the situation and she's like, Jace, that was my spot. I wanted to sit closest to daddy. And so I said, hey, it's okay, Audrey, hold on. There's plenty of couch here, right? I said, Jace, you scoot down that way. I'll scoot down with Jace and then Audrey, you can sit over here close by my side. And I love the fact that my kids want to sit close to me, at least at this time in my life. I'm thankful that they want to get, I mean, they got so close, they're like snuggling, I can barely hold the book effectively because they're on top of me. And no, n- not very long after, my three-year-old Jude is barreling down the hallway, daddy, daddy, lap, lap, I want to sit on your lap. And so I've got this massive three-year-old in front of me, arms extended as much as I possibly can to try to show them the pictures. And don't you know that that's the picture that God has given to you and me as a father? And as his children we're meant to be close to one another and he finds comfort in that, he finds joy in that and we as his children find comfort and we find peace and we find strength in that. But let's be honest tonight, there's seasons and there's times in our lives where he doesn't feel too close, right? Am I the only one? There's times and there's seasons when he doesn't feel like our father. And I'm telling you tonight that that's a problem and that's not a problem that he created. That's not a problem that's on him. Because we know this, that God is perfect. God is righteous. God is holy. God didn't move. If God doesn't feel close, that's on us. Whenever there's a breach in the relationship, it's not that God is the offending party. No, we are the offending party. And in order for forgiveness to take place, well, the offending party needs to seek that forgiveness. The offending party needs to seek that reconciliation and so that is not God that is us because the reality is God is a God of reconciliation and God is a God of restoration and you and I are sinful and we're fallen and then we're in desperate need of his grace and his forgiveness and so that reality when we think about it the fact that sometimes our sin gets in the way of our relationship with God you know when we truly pause and we think about the fact That God wants to be close to us no matter what. More than anything else, God wants to have intimate fellowship with you and me, and yet we mess it up sometimes. I don't know about you, but me, speaking from experience, here's what happens. I get two emotions that overcome me. When I know I'm in desperate need of God's forgiveness, and my sin has separated me from Him, and I'm not where I need to be with God, number one, I feel guilty. And number two, that guilt oftentimes turns into shame. Guilt and shame. And sometimes the most difficult person to forgive is not the person who hurt you the most, it's it's you. Sometimes the hardest person to forgive is yourself. How could I forgive myself after I let that person that I love down? How could I forgive myself? After I let myself down? How could I forgive myself when I let God down? And when we think about it, this can be so difficult because we know what we shouldn't have done even though we did it. We know what we should have said though we didn't say it. We know what we thought when nobody else was around and we carry that shame and we carry that guilt and we think to ourselves, how in the world could I forgive myself after what I did in that particular situation? Perhaps I'm not the only one here tonight that would say maybe God has forgiven me. Maybe he has, but how do I accept that? How do I reconcile that? How how, how do I get to a place where I'm truly at peace and I have that assurance that God has forgiven me of that failure when I can't even forgive myself? I don't know what it might be for you. Maybe you simply did something you can't undo or you said something you can't unsay. Maybe you were in uh, your teenage years or in your early 20s, you found yourself in a situation where your back was against the wall and you had to make a decision, and so you made a decision, but now, many years later, you're living with regret and guilt and shame for that decision that you made. Maybe you, you, in the name of, of loving your family, you did what you thought was best for your family, so as a dad and as a husband, you thought, I'm gonna provide for my family. I'm gonna give my wife and my kids what I didn't get to experience as a young person, and so I'm gonna give myself to this career, I'm gonna give myself to this profession, and I'm gonna be a good provider, and then years down the road, you look and your kids are disconnected from you, and your wife is distant, and you're looking at yourself and you're going, what was I doing? Why was I giving more importance to that when the most important people in my life were right in front of me this whole time? And now you live with that guilt and you live with that shame. Or perhaps maybe you found yourself in a really odd spot in your marriage. And rather than stepping into your marriage, you step out of your marriage. And you do something that betrays your spouse's trust. Or you do something that really hurts your spouse. And now you feel guilty about it. And now you're carrying that shame. Maybe it's the clicking And the looking on that website over and over again. And yes, you love God. You love him. And and if you're married, yes, you love your spouse. But you keep going back again and again and again. And you're carrying that guilt and you're carrying that shame with you. What do you do when what you did still haunts you? When the guilt just simply won't go away. We're considering God's promise of forgiveness tonight. So there is hope for us. But in establishing God's character of forgiveness, I do want to highlight this, that guilt is an an ugly thing, but not all guilt is created equal, right? Some of us here tonight are living under a sense of false guilt. In other words, maybe you're feeling guilty for something you shouldn't really feel guilty about. Perhaps for you, it's when you were a teenager or a young person, mom and dad split up and they divorced. And perhaps you thought, it's all my fault. If I would have done something differently, maybe mom and dad would still be together. Maybe, maybe I was the problem and so we understand that's a sense of false guilt because it's not their problem. It's not their fault. There might be some here tonight perhaps that you, you had somebody in your life that you trusted, somebody that you loved, somebody that you looked up to and they took advantage of you and they hurt you emotionally or physically, and oftentimes what happens in situations like that is the victim looks at themselves, and they think something's wrong with me. I did something to deserve that, and it's a very ugly monster, but that's false guilt. False guilt is dangerous, it's non-productive, it's not of God, and not all guilt is created equal because there's another type of guilt and that kind of guilt can actually be a gift that can draw us closer to God. You see, the right type of guilt can actually be a gift when it draws you into the presence of God. Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 says this, for godly sorrow worketh repentance. A sorrow that says, I wish I hadn't done that, That wasn't the right thing. That's not the me that I want to be. I I dishonored God. I hurt somebody. I disrespected that person. I, I would give anything to not do that over again. That's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But the same verse goes on to say that there's another kind of sorrow there's a worldly sorrow. And that sorrow, the Bible says, leads to death. Godly sorrow is a conviction. It's a good thing. It can, it can take you off of a wrong path and put you onto a good path. This is a godly sorrow that says, you know what? I, I, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to say what I said. I don't want to do what I did. I'm committed to being different. I want to change directions. I want to change my behavior. I want to apologize and mean it. I want to live in freedom. I want to express God's love and heal from what happened in the past." And I'm just trying to make the point tonight that there's a big difference between a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. A good example of a godly sorrow would be Jesus' disciple, Peter. Right? I don't know about you, but I identify with Peter a whole lot. Here's a guy who had some good things going for him. He had some good qualities about his life, but then he would just do something that would make you scratch your head. You know what I mean? Like, anybody else relate with that? <laughs> like, I mean, you're, you're, you're following God, you're, you're in the zone, you've got this spiritual momentum, things are going good, you're focusing on the right things, and then all of a sudden, you mess up. And it seems really, really big. And uh, you think to yourself, where did that come from? That's Peter. And unfortunately, that's a lot of us. But here's Peter, and as Jesus is kind of preparing his disciples for his death on the cross and his resurrection and his ascension back into heaven, you know, Peter was kind of bragging on himself, right? He says, hey, Jesus, you know, Jesus is kind of telling him things and he's like, hey, they're all gonna deny you. I'm not gonna deny you. You know, I'm your guy, I've got your back, right? Hey, Jesus, if you you have a battle and you're building an army, you want me in your army because I'll run on the front lines and I'll fight for you till the death. I love the compassion and grace of Jesus, even though he sees right through Peter. He, he says to him, well, Peter, that's great, but tonight, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what Peter did. We know the story, right? Jesus got arrested. Peter finds himself following Jesus to the court. And some young girl comes up to Peter and says, hey, you follow him, don't you? You're one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter says, No. What are you talking about? No, that's you've, you got the wrong guy. I, I don't know the man. A little while after, the gospels describe to us another young lady who comes up to Peter and said, I've seen you with Jesus. I know that you're a part of his discipleship and he denies it again. The Bible describes in Luke chapter 22 that about an hour later, another person asserts, no, certainly, I know that you are Peter, you're this Galilean, you follow this man. And he begins to curse, and he begins to deny, and he says, I know not the man. And as he's speaking the words, the rooster crows. Peter remembers. And just at that moment, Luke gives us some insight in Luke 22, verse 61. And the Lord looks at Peter, and Peter looks up at the Lord, and they lock eyes. And in that moment, when Peter denied Jesus Christ, the man he'd been following for three and a half years, he'd given his life to this man and to his ministry. He just denied him three times, and they look at each other in the eyes. No words had to be exchanged. What Peter felt was guilt. What he felt was shame. The Bible tells us that Peter remembered the words that Jesus told him that when the rooster crowed, he'd deny him three times. And the Bible says he went and he wept bitterly. What is that? That's an example of godly sorrow. Peter is not saddened and emotional because he got caught. He's saddened because of what he did. He knew he offended the heart of the one who was going to give his life for him just moments later. Peter acknowledged what I did was wrong and I can't believe what I did. How could I be so foolish? I'm sure all of us have had times in our lives when we've thought that, where we've had a moment like that, in the middle of our best intentions, we think to ourselves, I'll never do that again. And then some time passes, and we do it again. Or, you know, I truly love this person with all of my heart. I don't want to hurt this person, but in a moment of anger, in a moment of irritation and frustration, we say or we do something that hurts that person deeply. You promise yourself that you'll always do whatever and you don't. You promise yourself that you will never do this again and yet you do. And then you wake up and you say, I can't believe I did that. Perhaps you feel like Peter in this moment. How how could God love someone like me who never gets it right, that always falls short, that always hurts somebody that I love in a significant way? How could God use me when I just turn every which way and I, I create damage? And that When you're in that moment and you're in that spot, can I tell you, that's exactly where the devil wants you to be. That's exactly where he wants you to be. That moment that you're dwelling in your shame, our spiritual enemy, the great accuser, can I remind you? He he, he has you in a corner, and shame, one man said, is the devil's playground. Shame is the devil's playground, and shame is where he wants you to live. And here's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. I acknowledge that I did something wrong, but I also acknowledge that it's forgivable. Shame, on the other hand, you do something bad and you say, I'm a bad person. I've got a bad heart. I'm a bad person. And what the devil does is he tries to connect your actions to your identity in order to create a sense of shame. And he says, Look, you blew it big time, and from this moment forward that you've failed. I-, I want you to believe that you're pathetic. I want you to believe that you're useless. I want you to believe that you're worthless. Hey, God will never use you again after what you did. God will never use you again after what you said. You'll never be happy. You'll never be blessed. You'll never measure up. You'll never have a real impact. You'll never have a substantial ministry. You'll never have a great marriage. Your kids will never really respect you and honor you. You're never gonna leave a great legacy. Hey, your credibility ability is lost. It's gone. You're always going to be marked by that one thing that you did and everybody's going to label you for it because you are bad. The pain you're experiencing, oh, that's that's just payment for your past. You deserve that, bub. The moment you start dwelling in your shame, the spiritual enemy has you exactly where he wants you. You can almost imagine what Peter was, or I'm sorry, what the devil was telling Peter after Peter had messed up like that. Perhaps he said, Peter, you blew it big time. Jesus trusted you. Jesus chose you. Out of everybody in the whole world that he could have chosen, he chose you, Peter, to make a difference in this world and to be one of his disciples. And guess what, buddy? You messed up. You blew it. And look, Jesus, to top it all off, saw you do it. And guess what, Peter? The disciples are going to know about this. You're going to lose your credibility. You're never going to be able to recover it again. Your life is over. Your integrity is shot. Your ministry is ruined. Peter, you completely, look, you should be ashamed of yourself. Shame, one man said, is the devil's playground. And I couldn't agree more. The devil wants to use your shame and my shame to drive us away from God. He screams his lies. You're not good enough. You ruined it. You blew it. You'll never measure up. After what you did, after what you thought, after the way that you behaved, after what you said, you think God really loves you. The devil wants to use your shame to drive you away from that fathership, child relationship with God. But I'm so thankful. And here's the hope of tonight that God wants to use your guilt to draw you closer to his grace. The devil uses your shame to drive you further away from God, but God wants to use your guilt to draw you closer to his grace. That's the difference between a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. A godly sorrow that says, I I don't want to do that anymore. I want a safe place to turn. I have a God who loves me. I have a God who cares for me. I have a God who will receive me. I have a God who his Bible says, his word says, his mercies are new every morning. We just sang about it this evening. His faithfulness is great. But the devil wants to use your shame to drive you away from him. You'll never be successful. You'll never be fulfilled. They'll never respect you. You'll never have anything significant or meaningful in your life. But our God, we just read it, he's a forgiving God. He's a gracious, the truth is, he's a gracious and loving and merciful and good and faithful And and just, we can't even comprehend all the things that he is for us. But he's an amazing, awesome God. And he promises you rest. He promises you his grace. He promises you his goodness. And oh, thank God, he promises you and me his forgiveness. He wants to use a godly sorrow, a healthy guilt, to draw us to his grace, to receive his mercy and forgiveness so that we'll be free to do his will. Think about this. What Peter did there in that courtyard denying Christ three times is actually really similar to what Judas Iscariot did. Now, Peter denied Christ three times. Judas betrayed Jesus one time for 30 pieces of silver. But rather than having a godly sorrow like Peter had, Judas experienced what so many of us experience, a worldly sorrow. An unhealthy guilt. What happened to Judas? He turned Jesus in and he said, I'm busted. I ruined my life. I can't face another person. And his guilt, rather than drawing him to God's grace, drove him away from God. And it caused him to make a very poor decision, a decision to take his own life. And the devil loves to take that guilt, the guilt that God can use for good and use it for evil. To drive you away. Repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is simply changing directions, right? Re means to turn. Pent has the idea of a penthouse. So you are turning from something lower to something greater or better. God's ways. It's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. In other words, I I acknowledge I've sinned, and God, I'm sorry, and I'm not making excuses for what I did or what I did not do. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And Jesus went on to give his life for you and for me. Why? For the forgiveness of our sins. The one who was perfect became sin for us. He condescended to this sin-sick world, and he died in your place, and he died in my place. And the Bible describes that when he died, the world went dark. There was no hope to be found until three days later, there's some ladies running toward the tomb looking to see the body of Jesus and take care of the body, but they saw the stone was rolled away. And they saw that the tomb was empty, and the Son of God, Jesus, was not there because God the Father raised him back from the dead so that you and I could have forgiveness for all of eternity. I love the story of Peter because I relate to Peter. In John's gospel, in the 21st chapter, he gives us insight to Jesus and Peter's relationship post denial. You remember this story? This would have been the first time that Peter and Jesus meet eye-to-eye since they met eye-to-eye after Peter denied him three times. And I can only imagine how powerful this moment was. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? (laughs) Oh, man, and Peter's like, yeah. Jesus, I did love you. I do love you. I just royally messed up. And I love what Jesus did not say. (laughs) Jesus did not say, I told you you were going to do that. Didn't say that. He didn't say, hey, you know what? You need to wallow in your shame. And you need to have some self-pity. And guess what, buddy? You're on spiritual timeout. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you know what? What you did was horrendous. Can't use you anymore. No. Peter, do you love me? God, you know I love you. You know I do. I love what Jesus says. Well, then feed my sheep. Well, then go do what I've set out for you to do. Well, then Go do my will for your life. Go accomplish the task that I've given you to do. Look, Peter, you're forgiven. And I love what Peter says. Peter doesn't say, "Uh, no, I can't accept that. I can't can't allow you to do that, Jesus. I I deserve to wallow in my shame. I deserve to to just drown in my self-doubt and my pity and my guilt. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, look, Jesus, you can do this for John and James and Bartholomew and all these guys, but not for me. I don't, I don't deserve this. That's not what Peter said. It's not what he did. It's not how the conversation went. No, he acknowledged his sin somewhere along the way. He repented. He apologized. He received the forgiveness of Jesus. I don't know what you're holding on to tonight. I don't know what's just like looming over you. Could be something that you didn't do that you should have done years ago. Could be something that you did just this past week that's creating a whole lot of damage in your life. Something you said, you can't say it. Something you did, you can't undo it. Something in a moment of weakness that robbed you of your credibility. Can I just remind you tonight Like if we believe the Bible is true, if we believe God is real, and we believe what his word says, here's what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. We could just preach that for a minute. He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us, not just of certain iniquities and certain failures, not just of the ones that aren't too big. Now cleanse us of all all our unrighteousness. So I don't know what you're holding on to tonight, but you're looking at a person who holds on to things sometimes too. And I think it's about time that we stop allowing the devil in our flesh to get the best of us and to let go, and to let God and embrace his forgiveness. Look, whatever it is tonight, you've got to let it go. You've got to let it. And no, I'm not going to sing the Disney Princess song, guys, because we're in the whole church tonight. We're not in the youth group. So, And I'm raising four kids, so I actually don't ever want to hear that song again. But it works for this. You need to let it go. Let go of the lies that you told. Let go of the neglect, the words you said, the thoughts you had. If God, if you've taken it before God, then God has recovered you from it. God has forgiven you. And I don't understand it. I don't understand this. But God doesn't hold it against us. People may hold it against you for your life. Nothing you can really do about that. That's between them and God. But God will never hold it against you. I'm so thankful for that. He's forgiven you of your sin. You're free, so don't let the pain of your past rob you or keep you hostage of what God wants to do in your future because God is in the future-changing business. We serve a God who gives hope for the future. Why? Because he promises forgiveness, and he promises his grace, and he's a good God. You did something you wish you hadn't done. Let it go. You looked at something you shouldn't look at. Again and again, let it go. You hooked on something way too early in your life you wish you were never hooked on. Learn how to live in freedom and teach others how to live in freedom and let it go. Do you love him? You'd say, of course I love him, Andrew. And he would look at you and say, then go feed my sheep. Go do my will. Let it go. Move forward. And here's what's going to happen, though, and you know this. The devil, is a, uh, he's, he's, he's a punk. He's He's sly here's what he's going to do. When you're trying to let it go, the devil's going to bring up your past, isn't he? And and he's just going to remind you. He's going to say, well, you said this and you thought that thought and you said that and you weren't there for them and you let them down and you can never undo that. He's going to bring up your past. He's going to try to rob you of your future. But you need to just remind yourself. That's why it's so important. And we're telling the young people right now on Sunday mornings, it's so important that we learn to read this book for ourselves and we learn what God's word has to say for us because we need to look at the truth of the word of God and we need to mute out the devil's lies. We need to listen to his truth, not just at church on Sunday and Wednesday, but we need it on Monday and Tuesday and all the other days of the week. We need this and we need to fill our hearts and our minds with God's truth because our enemy is trying to talk us out of God's potential for our lives. I love the story of Peter, because if you think about Peter, who did God use on the day of Pentecost to reach thousands of people? He didn't use the guy who had it all together. No, he used the guy who needed forgiveness the most. He didn't use the guy who never made a mistake. And man, he's just an awesome leader and this and that. That's all wonderful things. And if you can avoid the pain and hurt from bad choices, that's awesome. But God used a guy who needed his grace if you've been forgiven of much, I want to uh, encourage you with this tonight. You can love much if you've been forgiven of much. Do you love him? Of course I love him. Then feed his sheep. Here's what God's word says. You are not what you did. That's something that you did. That's not who you are. You are God's child. He is your heavenly father, and he wants nothing more than to be close to you. What? No, that's what God's word says. How does he do that? He forgives you like nobody else can. And I can't explain it, but you did something bad. The devil wants you to think that you'll always be somebody bad. But Jesus makes all things new. He says, you're not what you did. That's not who you are. You are my child. <laughs> he is mine and I am his, like the guy's saying. And you might say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a bad page in the book. That was a bad chapter in the story of my life. But God's not done writing the story of my life. And I can be confident of this very thing, Paul said. I can be, very, I can be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in me Amen. will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, whatever it is for you, the weight, the guilt, the shame, I encourage you tonight to take it to the one who can forgive you and um, turn from it, repent of it, and if you do that, you'll have his forgiveness and you'll find freedom. Let it go. God is always ready and willing to forgive, and that, that is a promise. Let's all stand.